This is episode number 315, Real Toughness with performance expert Steve Magnus. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. What real toughness is about is it's about getting to some sort of decision that I'd say is thoughtful or wise, meaning we're not going to know if we get the right decision in that moment of stress or anxiety, but we want to be able to have a process where we can kind of navigate it through it so that hopefully the decision makes sense. So to me, instead of putting your head down and grinding through things, it's How do I create the space to navigate whatever the tough experience is, and then hopefully take wise action off the end of it? Mental toughness and the mental side of sport is one of my very favorite topics, and I was so excited to get to sit down with Steve Magnus on the podcast. The last time I sat down with him was along with Brad Stolberg a few years ago whenever they released their first book, Peak Performance, and that is a book that I still reference to this day. So let's talk about Steve. He is an expert on performance and the author of the new book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. He's also the co-author of the book Peak Performance and also The Passion Paradox. And he came on the podcast to talk about that book as well. His writing has appeared in Outside, Runner's World, Forbes, Sports Illustrated, Men's Health, and several other publications. His expertise on elite sport and performance has also appeared in the New York Times, Business Insider, ESPN, The Magazine, and more. Steve has served as an executive coach and served as a consultant on mental skills development for professional sports teams. But it all started with running, and that is Steve's favorite topic. He ran a 401 mile in high school, and that was the sixth fastest high school mile in U.S. history at the time. He's also co-host of The Growth Equation, which is a newsletter and podcast with Brad Stolberg. Steve has experience coaching some of the best runners, including his tenure as a coach at the University of Houston. In today's podcast, we talk about what mental toughness is and what it isn't. And oftentimes in our society, we get this vision of what mental toughness is, and that isn't actually the reality of what real toughness is. We talk about the importance of persistence. We talk all about self-talk, which is another one of my favorite topics. You'll also learn about how to tune into the pain and what that does for you. We talk about what a clutch state is versus what a flow state is, and that was something new that I learned from his book. We talked about how it takes courage to rest and also about expectation and vulnerability and how those two can be intertwined. If you like learning about mental skills for performance, you might be interested in my Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. It's all about the difference between good and great performers and the mental skills that you need in order to be your best. And I took research from all of the top psychologists, sports psychologists, and also neuroscientists, along with my own experience as a professional athlete doing the hardest things in the world on a mountain bike. In my course, you'll learn about confidence. You'll learn about things like self-talk, just like we talk about in this podcast, how to deal with performance anxiety, and so much more. And you can find the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy at sonyalooney.com. You can also find it at moxieandgrit.com, and that is M-O-X-Y and grit.com. 
And if you like the cross-section of high performance and well-being, you might like my weekly newsletter that comes out every single Monday at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, where I pick a topic and I go deep into not just what it takes to perform at a high level, but how do you do that sustainably? How do you strive and feel good in the process? Where does meaning come from in our goal setting? All right, so let's talk about real toughness with Steve Magnus. Welcome to the show, Steve. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We get to talk about one of my very favorite topics today, mental toughness. And your new book, Do Hard Things, was so well-written. And I feel like it was conclusive. It had all the things that we needed to know about mental toughness. Well, I really appreciate that. You know, you try to write it that way, but truth be told, when you're in the writing process, you're kind of stuck in the details and you never know how it will be received. So it's just wonderful hearing that, you know, I got the boxes right and um, delivered the message I wanted to deliver. So how did you go about organizing this idea? So that's a great question. And the honest truth is it was uh, very messy. And that uh, what often happens is I start off with an idea and I'm like, oh yeah, this makes sense. I'm going to organize it in this way, in this direction, and I'll create an outline. And then that inevitably at some point blows up in my face and makes doesn't make any sense. So I have to like reformulate, retry all these things. And you just go through a bunch of iterations until you either get so tired and sick of it that you just say, hey, this is how I'm organizing it or you find something that that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, the writing process is actually the simpler process to me. The outlining and figuring out how to structure it is the much more difficult process and honestly, it's just kind of me alone at a whiteboard or notebook and just playing around with a bunch of different ideas, getting sick of it, going back into my research and notes and seeing if I'm missing something and then getting so frustrated that I go on a run or a walk and hope that something pops into my head until I get something that feels right. So with your book, you turned the conventional idea of what mental toughness is or what we've previously thought mental toughness is on its head a little bit. Can you go into more detail on that? Yeah, absolutely. So conventionally, what we tend to think of is toughness as this idea of, well, I just play through the pain. I put my head down. I grind through whatever adversity I face. Like, how do you do that? You kind of ignore your doubts, your feelings, the emotions that are screaming at you to stop. You just kind of push them all away. And that might work occasionally. But what the research and the practice of the best athletes, you know, executives, people who go through very difficult things shows us is that that often fails more often than it succeeds. And that what real toughness is about is it's about getting to some sort of decision that I'd say is thoughtful or wise, meaning we're not going to know if we get the right decision in that moment of stress or anxiety. But we want to be able to have a process where we can kind of navigate through it so that hopefully the decision makes sense. So to me, instead of putting your head down and grinding through things, it's how do I create the space to navigate whatever the tough experience is, and then hopefully take wise action off the end of it. How do you define wise action? So to me, it's something, you know, it's, it's one of these, I struggled with this a lot. 
because it's kind of this nebulous concept of like, well, what does it mean to be wise? And at first I, I centered on like the right decision. Well, I, re- I realized that the right decision depended on the result often, and you don't know the result or where it's leading when you're in the moment. So that didn't feel right. So for me, I settled on kind of this wise action or thoughtful action because it's not necessarily that, you know, when we're tough, we're going to make the right choice all the time. But we want in that moment to be able to at least like know where we're going and have thought a little bit through the different paths that we can go. And my whole point is to kind of get us away from the natural instinct to default towards what I'd call the easy decision, which is often the one that alleviates the feelings and emotions or the negative thoughts quickest, but often isn't the thing that leads to maybe the ideal outcome over the long haul. Yeah. And you mentioned just a few minutes ago, knowing when to grind it out versus accepting difficult feelings or instead of ignoring pain or ignoring doubt. But then it also seems like you have to be able to grind it out in some circumstances and hold those feelings at the same time. Yeah. And you know what this book really gets at is the nuance of it. And I know we hate wrestling with nuance nowadays, but that's what makes difficult or tough decisions so, so important is that they really require you to have, you know, to to be thoughtful on it and to wrestle with that nuance. And the the idea I like to, or the example I like to give to kind of get this clear for people is sometimes quitting is the wrong thing to do. And sometimes it's the exact right and tough thing to do. Meaning like sometimes we equate toughness to persistence, but sometimes persistence gets in the way. So the example I like to use here is if you're a climber and you see the peak of the mountain and it's right there and you're like, I'm 150 meters from it. Like I can see the peak. That's my goal. That's everything I've been striving for, for the last you know, year plus to get to this point. But if at that same moment, you can't wrestle with the idea, huh, do I have the energy to make it all the way up to the top? And then come all the way back down because it's not just meeting the goal. It's completing the entire task that matters and staying alive doing it. So you have to kind of wrestle with these contrasting pulls, the pull for safety and security and self-awareness of understanding what you truly have left in the tank energy wise versus the pull to accomplish that goal, to get that feel good hit of being on the peak and summit. And in our own lives, like we all have that contrasting pull with our goals, our pursuits, all of that good stuff. And what we're trying to do is, again, kind of wrestle with it and have that awareness to say, all right, what's the right path in this moment, given the circumstances, given where I am, given what I'm going through and given you know the talent or my abilities to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish? Yeah, the ability to zoom out whenever you are so wanting to be so focused and when you have the drive and the ability to go after the thing, even though you know you might not be thinking about the big picture consequences, like the mountain climber, like the consequence might be death, or the consequence for, you know, somebody else might be that like maybe it ends the the path that they're on because they went too much too far into this one thing. And in your book, I love how you talk about a coping strategy about going broad or narrow and zooming in or out. And I first had heard of that on Andrew Huberman's podcast, but I loved how you applied that 
to mental toughness. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. So stress causes us to narrow. It's like a very constricting emotion and constricting biology behind it. And it causes us to narrow for good reasons. Like think of it evolutionarily. If we're stressed because there's we see a lion, like it focuses our attention only on the lion and the threat that is there. So how do we overcome this? Well, we're going to be very attuned to it. In our modern world, what it often does is it causes us to focus on and get narrow on the thing causing the stress. So we amplify that those feelings and emotions. The you know stressful event or experience is all that we can think about. We ruminate on it, right? Well, of course we do because it's this stressful experience, so our body's trying to solve it. But what happens is that narrowness often gets in the way. So it prevents us from seeing the big picture, from seeing potential other paths or solutions to this problem. It prevents us from turning on kind of our cognitive logical brain so that maybe we can think through this instead of just taking the immediate action or defaulting towards escaping or fight or flight. So what you have to do is you have to be able to zoom out. And there's a number of different ways you can do this, right? You can do this from an attention point of view, literally shifting your focus. So again, I said stress causes us to narrow where our attention literally narrows on the thing that is stressful. So if we adopt like a soft gaze or a broad view, or for example, I always wear glasses. If I take my glasses off and can't see details whatsoever, it almost like wrestles and pulls my brain out of that narrow mode and says, oh, okay, we're paying attention to the periphery. We must not be as stressed. So take those levels down. We can do that in a number of different ways as well as like, you know, even what we think about. So if your mental imagery or your self-talk is about if you shift it to things that create perspective, such as, you know, my good friend, uh, Phoebe Wright, told me this wonderful story when she was standing on the starting line of the Olympic trials and about to compete, like before she started the race, what went through her head or self-talk was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, yeah, I'm really stressed. But Phoebe, remember, this is track and field. No one really gives a crap about track and field, you know, and it's not to put down track, but it's true. Like whether she ran well or failed, like sure, a couple dozen people might be upset, but the people who actually matter, her friends, her family, those who love and support her, like if she won or she got last, they're still going to be here. So it, it zooms you out and puts you in a proper perspective of this thing that I'm doing there, this pursuit I'm taking on. Isn't life or death like, you know, the stress makes me feel it is. Yeah, I'm smiling because in some of my mountain bike races I've done, I felt that that feeling even in the race, like, oh, this isn't going the way that I want. And you become self-obsessed thinking about all these different things. And then you perform even worse because of it. And I imagine myself as this tiny little dot on the planet. And I just said, look, there's like a billion things going on right now in the world. Nobody cares about this stupid little bike race in like this corner of Africa or wherever, you know, so the power to zoom out and to say like, this isn't that big of a deal is helpful, but then you also have to hold the space for, well, to me, this is a big deal. And there's that nuance piece again. Exactly. I think, you know, what your listeners are getting is it really is about the nuance and it's like this balance between caring and letting go. And an athlete I used to work with who's phenomenal, Sarah Hall put this brilliantly not too long ago in the sense that 
you know, for a while she cared so much that her entire identity was kind of wrapped around the success of her running races or not. You know, if she ran well, then her self-worth went up. If she didn't, you know, it went down. And after she set the, I think it was American record in the half marathon, she had this beautiful quote that said essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, I had to let go of that and realize that like this thing that I saw as like caring was actually getting in my way. Now that's an example of like finding that balance and saying, Hey, I'm too far on this end of caring too much and wrapping myself in it. Other times you're going to find yourself on the opposite end where maybe you don't quite care enough. And often those are in things that we need to quote unquote, be tough in, but aren't like the things that we quite enjoy doing. And we have to think about, okay, why is this maybe more important than I'm giving it, you know, credence for? So for example, I don't know, like, Simple things like during in the midst of a pandemic, if you're part of a team, maybe taking extra care to like stay away from some people leading into races or wash your hands or whatever have you like that might be stuff that you kind of give effort to, but you know, you don't really focus much on, but now it's got more importance. So you've got to care about it more because it could be the difference between someone getting to a starting line and not. So figuring out how to turn that dial up. Yeah. And we're kind of getting to number one, like awareness of thoughts, because you might not even be aware that this is happening. And then number two, the emotional regulation piece of being able to actually deal with it in the intense moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think those two points are, you know, they're at the heart of the book is like, A, like awareness is huge, which is in order to deal with the thing, you have to kind of know what the thing is and identify it. And actually, there's some wonderful research that shows like if you name and label things, even your self-talk, if you name and label it, it allows you to deal with it much better. So, you know, I've had athletes who tell me like, you know, in the midst of races, they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, crazy Steve's self-talk because it's like, (laughs) of course, I don't want to quit and find a hole to step in. But like, those are the thoughts that are popping into my mind. So what do I do? I label it as like something that is like, yep, I'm saying that, but it doesn't have a lot of meaning and purpose because it's like this voice over here that I don't need to necessarily, you know, pay attention to or listen to. And I know that sounds a little bit wild, but, you know, if you look at the psychology of our inner voices and our self-talk, a lot of it is, you know, voices that are what they call spontaneous that arise And the current theory is that, you know, they kind of arise out of our subconscious to let us know that something is important that we should pay attention to. So the self-talk of, hey, find a hole to step in arises because you're probably in the middle of something very painful and it's probably in the middle of the race. So you're not sure if you can make it to the end. So that voice arises because your brain's like, well, I don't know if we're going to make it. We might run out of fuel and that might put us in a dangerous place. So like pop this voice into our head that is negative so that like, you know, Steve, Captain Steve, whoever is aware of it. Yeah, I like how you named it a different name. Yeah, there's been lots of times I fantasize about stabbing holes in my tires or getting lost. And I think that a lot of people think that 
people at the top level don't have those thoughts, but really like every single race, at least for me, I want to quit no matter what, even if I'm winning the race, I want to quit the race. Like this is horrible. I want to quit. And it's paying attention to that thought and being like, yeah, that's there, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to quit or that I have to quit is, has been really helpful. Exactly. And there's this wonderful story from the Boston marathon when, when Des Linden won and, you know, I think it was like six, seven miles into the race. She turns to her fellow American, Shalane Flanagan, and says, like, I'm feeling horrible. I'm going to drop out of this race. Like, I'm just going to keep going and, and help you out. And what happens, she keeps going, helps Shalane out, but like eventually starts to feel better and eventually wins it. And I think that's, again, this wonderful example of even the best of the best have these thoughts of, hey, I'm going to drop out. And even the best of the best have to use some sort of strategies, even if Des, you know, planned on dropping out. Well, what happened? She turned her attention to, I'm going to forget about me and stop wallowing in the, I don't feel good and just put my focus, change my focus to helping someone else out. And lo and behold, that allowed her to, you know, get to a space where eventually she came out of it and felt better. So it's a wonderful example, again, of sometimes what we have to do is shift our focus. And in that case, maybe zooming out means, you know, shifting your motivation and your goal from achieving this, you know, personal thing to how do I help others? And that often frees you up to perform at the best of your ability. Yeah. And this brings us back to what we talked about in the very beginning of knowing when to quit versus not to quit. And again, it's hard to tell somebody like, here's the blueprint of when you should quit. But there's tools that you that you can try, just like what you described of zooming out, focusing on something that's not yourself, possibly not ruminating on how bad you feel in order to start making other decisions. And that might change the way energy is coming to you. Yeah, exactly. And I think really it is like it's figuring out the way I like to think about it is we need a diverse array of tools to pull out of our uh, toolkit because we never know what's going to work well, you know. An athlete that I used to coach, Brian Barraza, put it to me this way. He's a finalist in the uh, Olympic trials for the steeplechase. And he said, like, I need as many tools as I can because, like, half the time they're going to fail. And I don't know what's going to work in this situation. So, you know, you got to spend your time practices and races developing some of these tools, which is, as we talked about, a lot of it is around, okay, how do I zoom out and create perspective? Other tools are like, well, you know, sometimes I'm going to need to grit down and, and bear it, as I said, but other times I'm not going to need to like accept that this is how I feel, kind of like the Desland example. Well, I don't feel good right now. Well, I'm just going to accept it and shift my focus to another direction. And the more tools you can have, the better you are. And that's also why I advise people if we're talking about endurance sport is don't just think of your training sessions as physical preparation, but see some of them as like mental preparation, which means sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes in practice, you're going to want to let your mind go to a bad place and then see if you can figure out how to work your way through it. What do I mean by that is like, hey, if you're feeling off and your legs aren't good, like you know, just like focus on that, almost amplify it, almost like wallow in it for a bit and then try and pull yourself out using all these different tools. Because I think far too often what happens is we avoid those kind of mental places and try and make practice perfect 
well, then we never kind of, you know, see what works and develop those skills so that we can apply it on race day. And I think the reason why people love endurance sports so much is that you get a masterclass almost every single time you go out the door and it makes you better everywhere else in your life because you experience these extreme highs, these extreme lows, and then you figure out the type of person that you want to be in order to overcome those things. Yeah, exactly. This is why I love endurance sport. I'm biased, but I, 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 I think <laughs> Me it, too. <laughs> it, I think it does that wonderful thing, which is it puts you in these places where you're going to be at your highest highs and your lowest lows. You might break down. You might cry. You're going to be vulnerable. And I think that's also why it often like creates these friendships that are often, you know, transcending or deep or lifelong because we get to see each other at our realest moments. Like we're not carrying around a facade. We are kind of losing our mind when we have a flat tire or crash or like drop out of race. And that's just the reality of it. But I think at the same time, like that prepares us and gives us the skill set for life because how many times in life are you actually going to be put in situations where you have to, you're almost like stripped down to your rawest and have to deal with it. And the other part of it is endurance sport forces us to spend a lot of time alone in our head. And it's just us navigating it. And again, in so many other aspects of life, we never have to experience that because we can always, I don't know, we can always pick up our phone, you know, distract ourselves. And as we're standing in line at the airport waiting, like we don't have to deal with boredom because we've got the easiest solution. Well, when you're out on a run or out on a bike ride, like you kind of have to deal with it and there's, there's no way out. So that's why I think endurance, you know, again, I'm biased, but this is why I think everyone should practice some sort of endurance thing in their life. I want to talk a little bit about tuning into the pain. Um, That's something that you wrote about in the book. Yeah. So I think when we look at tuning into the pain, what it is, is you have to almost understand the nuance of it. And the only way you do that is if you turn your focus and attention to it. So as an endurance athlete, you know this, your listeners know this, but we didn't always know this, which is there are different levels and kinds of pain or fatigue. And this is the lesson you had to learn very early on, which is, you know, early on in our careers, maybe we felt like something that felt painful or a little bit, you know, off. And our mind jumps to like, oh my gosh, I've got to quit. I must be injured. This isn't normal. And the reality is it was just like, oh, this is a little pain and fatigue from working out. Other times we pushed too hard and we thought, oh, I've got to push through the pain. And we pushed right through pain that was saying, stop because you're about to be injured. And we ended up injured. So distinguishing the nuance of the pain that you can work through versus the pain that means injury is on the horizon when we should actually stop is a skill. So understanding the different levels or nuance of pain is super important. That means kind of getting comfortable exploring it. That means understanding, you know, the pain that means maybe muscle fatigue versus I'm running low on sugar Or for me, pain that means like, hey, I can work through this versus pain that means like, hey, I'm going on a run in Houston, Texas, and 
I might be dehydrated like crazy. So I should listen to this and not try and make it another mile without drinking water or what have you. So understanding that nuance is incredibly important. Yeah, I think it's hard sometimes to pull yourself out of that. And also, I feel like our culture celebrates when people make bad decisions about pushing through pain. And I used to make some really stupid decisions back in the day of pushing through pain. And I don't even want to list them out because I don't want to give people any ideas that they should do that. But part of it, I think, comes from insecurity of saying, like, I have to do this. I don't have the confidence to say that I'm not going to start this race or I need to drop out of this race and the need to try to prove something and that chip on your shoulder. So it's, it's really hard whenever you have that chip on your shoulder and then people are celebrating when you do push through that pain. It is exactly. And I think so much of these things come from insecurity and that's normal. Like we're human. So we're all going to be insecure to a degree. I think it's really trying to develop that quiet internal confidence of, well, is this the best decision for me in this moment or not? And if you're listening and you're maybe coaching or leading athletes, this is, you know, what you reward and incentivize also does this, right? If you look down on, let's say quitting or, you know, listening to your body, for example, then of course, athletes are going to say, oh, coach doesn't like it when we you know, say, Hey, I'm a little tired or like this hurts a lot. So they're just not going to say it. They're going to say, Hey, I'm going to push through stuff. If you, again, maybe not reward is the right word, but if you are open and listening to it and saying, Hey, we've got an open communication system. If you walk up to me and say, Hey, Steve, I am just not feeling it today. Like I'm worried about X, Y, and Z. We're going to have a conversation to see, is this something you should train through? Or is this something that we should listen to? And I'm not going to like berate you for being quote unquote weak or not pushing it through. So a lot of it is, I think, the environment and creating that environment where, you know, evaluating some of this stuff is acceptable and normal. Yeah. So I have a two-year-old and a baby right now. You probably heard the baby crying in the background. It takes mental toughness to not go in that direction and wonder what's happening. But you talked about like authoritative versus authoritarian parenting, but also coaching. And we always hear the stories of the coach screaming. Like my husband played college basketball and like the coach was just like this guy that just screamed and got red in the face. And then you talk about other ways to coach that are going to be inspiring people to perform not out of fear, but from more of an intrinsic motivation. And I thought that was a really, really great thing to read in your book. Yeah, I loved researching and writing that, especially looking into the parenting research, because I didn't think that was going to come out or come through when I first got into it. But essentially what it is, is, I mean, it's pretty simple and it's common sense, but it's something that is still done so often is we think, oh, well, what's the best way to coach or lead? We often default towards this power control model that is based on kind of this or authoritarian, I'm going to like, it's my way or the highway. I'm going to yell and scream at you. But when do we perform our best? Do you do it when you're like out of a place of pure fear where you're scared? If you don't win, you're going to get punished or what have you. The vast majority of people don't like we perform our best when we're relaxed to a degree, when we're excited about the race, when we're playing out of a a place of joy and wanting to instead of having to. And I think if we just think about that, of course, the authoritarian style doesn't work. But what the research shows is pretty simple is 
they plot, as you hinted towards, they plot what's called demandingness, which is that high expectations, the demands are incredibly high versus responsiveness. And with authoritarian style coaches or leaders or parents, you have a high demandingness. So they yell and scream and have power and control. And it's my way or the highway. I'm in charge, et cetera. But they have low levels of responsiveness, which is I'm not going to pay attention to your needs. I'm not going to fulfill them. I'm not going to offer you that care and support. And in practically all aspects, especially in parenting, it's fascinating as it leads to kids who aren't as disciplined, which goes against, I think, everything that authoritarian parents want. They're doing it out of discipline, right? Leads to less discipline. Why? Because the kid learns like, oh, I have to essentially fake it while this parent is around, but then I've got to figure out ways how to like get around it when they're not. It also fails in discipline because you never learn emotional control because you're never put in a situation where you can like express or navigate those emotions because you're told like, oh crap, if I you know start crying, I'm going to get yelled at. So you don't explore them. You don't figure out what they mean or how to deal with them. So it's just kind of bad all the way around, <laughs> but it's not, it's not being permissive and saying, oh, you know, I'm going to allow you to do everything you want. It's having some expectations and combining it with like a high level of responsiveness and care. And if you find that Goldilocks zone, which is often hard to do, but if you find that like the outcomes are better, performance are better, and you find people who develop that intrinsic love or joy or motivation, which we know sustains us over the long haul. Yeah. Something that as you're talking that came up that I thought was interesting is that we were talking about sort of an extrinsic thing of people, you know, getting feedback from a parent or a coach or a leader, but sometimes our own self-talk has this authoritarian, like people are mean to themselves or they're hammering away versus having more of a compassionate conversation with yourself that can inspire you to be better. And some people are really afraid to have that level of compassion because they think they're going to perform worse if they're not mean to themselves. Yeah, it's a really tricky thing because, again, societally, we've kind of ingrained like you kind of have to be a jerk to yourself to get the most out of yourself. But again, the research and the practice tends to show that like there's very few people who can survive on the like I'm going to, you know, function out of fear and control. Maybe a, a Michael Jordan, for example, who is famous for creating like these stories in his head that everyone is against him and um, out to get him and, and negative. And that's what fueled him. Very few people can function, perform and be like happy, decent human beings while in that spot. Like compassion doesn't mean you're quote unquote weak or soft. It means that you're like you're realistic and understanding the reality of the human kind of condition that you face, that we all face. And if you have compassion towards yourself, then you can like figure out how to navigate and explore and, you know, find your way out on the other side. Often when we're hard on ourselves, what happens is we ingrain the message that, oh, this experience is a negative one, which puts us in an avoidance mindset. When we're in a compassionate phase to ourselves, what often happens is we get, instead of avoidance, we approach the thing. We try and figure it out. We try and see, okay, what can I learn and take away from this? Instead of like, oh, this is a negative thing. I'm going to avoid it altogether. 
Something that you and Brad Silberg wrote about in your book, Peak Performance, many years ago, which I still refer back to that book because I think it was so well done, was Flow State and Chicks in My High's research. And that was the very first time I ever actually heard of that. And it seems like now everybody's talking about flow and, and that type of research. So I first learned about it from you guys. And in your book, you talk about clutch versus flow state and the choosing versus the experience. I thought that was really, really interesting, the way that you put that in that way in the book. Can you talk about that? Yeah, exactly. So it's fascinating new research. And as you said there, uh, flow has been out for a while, but flow is like being in the zone. It's when that performance just comes to us. And what research shows is that it's almost like we we put ourselves in that place and then we let it happen. It's those races where everything just feels like, again, we're flowing along and we can do no wrong. And it, it often almost feels like we're a little bit detached and it just has come naturally. It's the races we finish up and we're like, oh man, like I think I could have exerted more. That was a little bit effortless, even though I knew I was tired and you know all fatigued and all that good stuff. And often we seek those states out, which is important, but you're not always going to be able to get in a flow state. And what research shows is there's another state of performance that allows us to perform at our best as well. And that's what researchers call a clutch state. Now we all know what coming through in the clutch means. It means pressure is high and all of that good stuff. And what often happens is when pressure is high, it's hard to get in a flow state because flow state is like this, this perfect like Goldilocks zone of kind of high pressure, but not overwhelming. And clutch states, the other thing that is really different and important to it is it requires a conscious decision. As you're saying, hey, I'm going to make the decision to put forth effort to do this thing, to come through. And again, when it also requires a little bit different goals, instead of kind of open-ended goals, it requires more focused goals of, you know, I need to do this in this amount of time in order to win this game or what have you. And I love this kind of contrast here between almost flow and clutch at, at both ends, because what it gets at is no matter the situation you're in, like there is a state where you can perform well. You've just kind of kind of match your internal environment with that external. And when you do that, like good things can happen. Yeah, something that uh, just popped in my mind was that you're talking about almost a goal. You said focus goal versus more of an open-ended goal. And in coaching, a lot of times it's like, well, don't, don't focus on the outcome, like focus on the process. But when you're in a clutch state, it seems like you have to be focused on a specific outcome, like scoring a certain number of points in a certain period of time. Yeah. So this is, I'm a hundred. And again, this is why I love the nuance that we, we keep coming back to. I'm a big proponent of focusing on the process and not the outcome. Right. But every once in a while, there are specific situations where if you focus on the outcome, it gives you this big boost and this focusing effect. And again, the research shows clutch states almost require that. Well, why? Well, think of it. I don't know. Maybe you're in the middle of a, or in a race and let's say you're running a marathon and you get to 5K to go and you look up at the clock and you're just like, okay, I've been focusing on the process. I've been focusing on the process. But then you you look up and you say, oh my gosh, if I run this last 5K in whatever, 18 minutes, 
I'm going to PR and, you know, reach my goal and qualify for whatever Boston or the Olympic trials, whatever your goal was. Well, that's going to give you this jolt of, for a lot of us, positive adrenaline that's going to push us forward. And I think that's a great example. Actually, years ago, I had a lady who was trying to make the Olympic qualifying standard, and she was so nervous about hitting the time that I just said, don't look at the clock at all. Like, don't look at the clock. Just focus on racing and let the time come. Well, she did that to a T. But I'm looking at, you know, and it was a 5,000 meter race. The laps are going down. You know, we're in the last mile. We're 1,200 to go. We're 800 to go. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be close, but she's got to close hard. And, you know, finally, I think with 600 to go, I yelled out like, look at the clock. <laughs> and she like looks at the clock, you know, with and sees it. And is like, oh my gosh, if I run this time, I can make the Olympic, you know, qualifying standard. And she made it by less than a second and like had a, a massive kick and this jolt of energy to do so. So every once in a while, again, it's, it's that nuance, like process is great, but sometimes those outcomes can like give us that energy and uh, that experience and put us in that clutch state where we're going to amplify and enhance our performance. Yeah, I was kind of getting this visual of what you're talking about, like process is like this big circle and then the clutch or like the little outcome goals are like little bubbles within the circle that can kind of be floating around if the opportunity presents itself. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great way to put it is that, you know, most of the time it's like the process is the big thing. It's focus on that, focus on that, but don't discount entirely the other side of it because in small moments, again, that might be the extra energy or extra juice that gets you through the difficult thing. So we can't, again, say, oh, always process over outcomes. Every once in a while, we're going to need that, that thing. And that thing might you know, be able to help you do something that you weren't, didn't think was possible. I also am thinking about that story you just told and the amount of mental toughness it must have taken that person to not look at the clock while they're out racing. Like I, I would struggle with that if someone said, don't look at the clock, but you, you, the clock's right there. That must've been really hard for her. Yeah, it, it was, but I think, you know, it was, she knew on the flip side of like, how almost limiting it is because the way I like to think of it is, is something helping you along the way or is it like getting in the way? And in endurance sport, we're all kind of familiar in this is if you look down at your watch, you know, is that feedback or your, your monitor, is that feedback helping you? Or does it come with like this tinge of anxiety that says, oh, I'm not running as fast or biking as fast or my mile per hour is slower or my split is slower. If your mind constantly goes that direction, then it's getting in the way and you need to figure out, you know, how to like either take the watch off or ignore it or not pay attention to it or whatever have you. If it's helpful, then by all means, like use it. If you're looking down at your watch and you say, okay, like this is great. I'm controlled. I'm doing executing my race plan and it's helping you then by all means go for it. So it's really, again, that this is the, the theme of the podcast. It's like that nuance and that self-awareness to understand, is this supporting my goals or is this taking away from it? I'm going to talk about peak performance again, because if people haven't picked up that book, I still want them to. <laughs> but in that book, a maxim is have the courage to rest. And that has been a mantra that I've taken with, with me because I actually need that mantra myself. 
And it takes mental toughness to rest. It takes courage and confidence to rest. So taking the lens of some of these tools in the book as it relates to resting and pulling back whenever you need to pull back, can you kind of say how mental toughness relates to rest? Well, again, it comes down to insecurity, right? Why can we not rest? Because of insecurity. We think, oh my gosh, if I'm not working, if I'm not out here getting another workout in, I'm falling behind. So, you know, in the in the book, I had this chapter on confidence where I tell this story of actually the last American to hold the world record in the, the marathon, Buddy Edelin. And his coach kind of reprimands Sam because he did a, a workout a couple of days leading into a big race. And he said, essentially, I forget the quote exactly, but this is a manifestation of insecurity. There's a time to rest, not halfway rest. And I think that gets to what you're talking about there is that it takes toughness to rest. Mm-hmm. So whenever you're struggling with that, again, what's your goal to take that wise, thoughtful action? And yes, if I rested all the time, is that the wise action? No, because I'm never going to get better. But if I rest, you know, appropriately to support the work that I've done or take a recovery day to support and allow me to adapt and grow, is that the wise action? Absolutely. So it's kind of reframing things and stop seeing the work only as the benefit, but seeing rest and recovery as a benefit as well as the time to adapt and grow when you need it. So it's, again, getting rid of that in, or maybe turning the volume down on that insecurity, reframing it in a positive lens, and then having kind of the courage or toughness to be able to follow through on that. I also think like asking yourself, why am I doing more? Like, is it because I saw a competitor Strava and they're doing, you know, 20 hours of training this week. So I need to do 20 hours of training this week or, you know, so-and-so did this process. This is how they got successful. Therefore I need to replicate this exact process when that actually might not be the best thing for you. Yeah. You know, I think in today's world, whether it's Strava or social media, oftentimes we let the external influence our kind of own internal guides. And that's where it gets in the way. So I think that's a great question to ask is, where is this coming from? And I also think the other part of that is, like, don't get lost on Strava or social media (laughs) stuck in comparison mode. I'm not putting down all of it. I mean, I use that stuff. But like, if you constantly find yourself comparing to your competitors or people who did you know, this many mile repeats or this long run or this long ride or this workout, then it's probably a sign that you need to get off Strava or social media for a while or follow different people who don't invoke that kind of, you know, feeling or angst around it. So again, it's like, how do I check in, have the self-awareness to see, is this something that is supporting my endeavor and pursuit? Or is this something that is, you know, causing insecurity and getting in the way. How do you help the athletes that you've worked with who aren't comfortable being vulnerable and honest with themselves and taking responsibility? Because all of the things that we're talking about assume that people are comfortable or at least okay with being vulnerable and taking responsibility for their successes and their failures and their challenges. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is like creating the space and the environment for it. You can't force vulnerability. You can't say, Hey, 
you know, be vulnerable right now. Like, tell me, you know, all your worst moments or what was going through that. That's not going to work. Like, it's not. We're, you know, our egos are protective. Our brains are self, you know, protective. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to feel like, you know, we're not the greatest person in the world. So you have to just kind of acknowledge that. So instead, again, I try and create that that expectation or, the, or that, I should say, the space for it. What do we mean by create the space for it? Well, a space where they know that they can be vulnerable without repercussions, without like being completely judged on their endeavors. And then I think the other thing that is really important is model it, is the research again shows very clearly we think that we have to establish trust and then we can be vulnerable. The research actually shows we have to be vulnerable, which then signals to the person we're talking to, oh, they're being vulnerable so I can trust them. So I'm going to be vulnerable back and that reciprocation creates trust. So for me, you know, if you're a position of leadership or coaching, it's, or a model for your athletes, it's okay. I need to model this, which means I need to show the reality of the struggles that maybe even I face on a day-to-day and the reality of the difficulty of this sport and, all the baggage and carnage that it often brings with it and the uncertainty around performing. Because again, I think, especially with new people, they look up to people who have had some success and they think, oh my gosh, that person must never struggle. It's like we talked about earlier. Those elite athletes must never think about quitting. (laughs) Well, tell them stories about how you've thought about quitting and you know, make it real and vivid because it is real and vivid. And if you do that, Again, you're going to slowly break down those barriers and uh, create the space for some honest conversations. Yeah, the tone is definitely set at the top and uh, it takes courage and vulnerability of those people at the top to be honest and not pretend that they didn't train for like, oh, I didn't do any work for this event or, oh, that was easy or just that that's so false. It's so performative. And I think that it makes everybody better. And it even gives the person who is, you know, the one out there trying to perform, it gives them more, more space to be themselves whenever they can screw up. And then people are still inspired because of that, not the thinking that, oh, this person isn't as good as I thought they were. And you nailed it right there. It's really a space to be themselves. And that's what we're trying to create is like ditching the facade, like not having to put on your perfect (laughs) Instagram life, And like having a space where you can be you and your full kind of weird, quirky self. And I think, again, endurance sport tends to do this better than other places because we tend to accept like that that's kind of normal because you got to be a little bit crazy to maybe do, (laughs) do the things that we do. And that's fine. Like I'm a little nuts as well. So I think, again, creating that environment where it's it's okay, we accept it and as you said, it often comes from the top down is, are you modeling that yourself? Are you being yourself and honest with those that you lead? And if you do so, often it will, you know, reciprocate and follow. Yeah. And again, like the fact that you can be yourself gives you permission to continue being yourself and you don't feel like your identity or your self-worth is is at risk or is going to be threatened just by showing who you really are. Exactly. And I think this is one of the most important things as a coach is, 
you know, especially in vulnerable moments, like after a tough race or a tough loss, Mm -hmm. like, are you making it better or worse? Are you allowing them to say like, yeah, I care a lot and this sucks, but I'm not going to wallow in it. I'm not going to beat them down or are you not? And I think, you know, that's that important place is I almost think we have it as like these sensitive moments, especially after losses or tough races where it's like, well, if I say the wrong thing, this could ingrain like a negative emotional state where they're then going to protect themselves after a loss and, and try and justify or defend, or I can create this environment where they can still be who they are, even though they went through this moment that might be a little embarrassing or they might not feel good about, but I can still allow them to kind of like feel the feelings they feel and you know, process it in a productive manner so that we can kind of grow from it. And I think going back to that old school model is the exact opposite thing or the exact wrong thing that you can do in that moment is often yell, scream and beat them down. Because what does that do? It tells you that like, don't be real, especially in your vulnerable moments, like don't be who you are. And that again, backfires over the long haul. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people find this book and find your podcast and, and all the great things that you're putting out in the world? Yeah, I appreciate it. I love this conversation. Uh, it's very easy to talk to you. So I appreciate that. You can find Do Hard Things wherever you buy books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere. And then you can find me all on social media at Steve Magnus. And then my newsletter, podcast, all that good stuff at thegrowtheq.com. Yeah, and everyone should subscribe to that newsletter and podcast. Those are things that I regularly read and listen to, and it's really helpful for me. And I know that everybody listening will enjoy it too. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. I hope you enjoyed that awesome episode. I get so much out of listening to the Growth Equation podcast and from the books that Steve Magnus has written along with Brad Stolberg and also Steve's new book, Do Hard Things. If you're enjoying the show, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave us a five-star review as that will help it find others. So grateful that you are here. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And I'll see you right back here next week.